Since his death in 1616, William Shakespeare has often been held up as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, English language writers. His plays are often positioned at the very top of the English literary canon and are a staple of both school curricula and theatre programmes. Nevertheless, the world in which Shakespeare was writing was clearly very different in many ways to that which we live in today. So what is it that keeps audiences, creatives and other thinkers coming back to his work? To answer that question, I hopped on a call with Philosophy Tube creator and longtime fan of the Bard, Abigail Thorne. Abby, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for giving aside some time to, uh, to chat with me today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I know we've been trying to organise this literally, I think, since you came to see The Prince. <laughs> and I've just been so mad busy, but it's nice to finally have the time. No, it's uh, yeah, it's nice to it's nice to to have been able to make it make it work. Um, and yeah, you you mentioned there uh, the prince, which uh, so you are you are now as well as being a accomplished uh, YouTuber, video creator, and uh, actor in all kinds of different things. You are now also an accomplished uh, award winning, I believe, playwright. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm embarrassed, but yes. <laughs> has that been how how has that experience been of sort of from from knowing that you were going to be putting on the show to uh creating it and uh to then the reception of it being so so warm uh i still can't quite believe that happened um it seems like a strange dream that we got to do the show at all never mind that it, it did it did so well and uh has hopefully gonna open some doors too um so yeah, it's been it's been a wild. I mean, how long has it been? I guess we must have started putting things together about this time last year. So it's been mm. a, it's been a really life changing experience. Yeah, so it was bound. I mean, I guess I've I've sort of jumped ahead a little bit in that the the show itself uh, was called called The Prince. Uh, what is your sort of pitch of it uh, to people who don't know anything about it when you're trying to get them interested in it? It's about a bunch of characters in a Shakespeare play who start to realize they're stuck inside a play and break out. And they crash through the Shakespeare multiverse as they go. So we start in Henry IV, and then we kind of bounce into Hamlet briefly. And then uh, there's characters jumping in from Julius Caesar and all sorts of stuff is happening. Um, sort of everything, everywhere, all at once, slashed the bard. <laughs> and it was, it was. I don't think I realized how, how multiverse it was until... Uh, I, until I was probably sat in the theatre watching mm -hmm. it in a kind of summer of uh, multiverse uh, cinema, wasn't it? I think. Um, yeah, there was something was in the water. I think. Like, had that been had that been part of something you were bouncing off when you were writing it and going, "Oh, this seems to be a cultural thing that people are interested in currently," or? Did Not consciously, no. I mean, the original plan was to have it all take place within Henry the Fourth, Part One. Hamlet, the detour into Hamlet kind of started as a joke and then then took it seriously. And was I was planning on cutting it down a lot until um Donica, the the uh dramaturge and Tash, the director, said, No, no, keep this in. This is an important bit. And uh the, the journey into Hamlet becomes sort of pivotal for for the play's um villain Hotspur. Um mm. That, that that kind of moment of Hamlet becomes really important for her, um, but yeah, it, uh, it it just sort of grew quite organically. Really, I, I wrote it over a period of um, 
on and off a period of about two or three years. Um, I sort of wrote drafts and then put it away and came back to it. And then about a year and a half, a year ago, I came back to it and started taking it more seriously. I was like, okay, this isn't just an exercise. This is something we're going to put on as a piece of theater. Mm. Yeah, because it does bounce between so many different uh, Shakespeare plays in sort of, you know, some of them briefly and some of them, I think like you were just saying, slightly more substantially Mm -hmm. in, it's probably Henry the Fourth Part One and Hamlet that are the kind of the two big ones, yeah, yeah. chunkiest bits. Um, so it must have. So it's almost. I don't know if you'd count it as research or whether you were already um, so well attuned to those plays that maybe it didn't feel quite so. But you must have had to have engaged with those plays quite a lot to be able to then write this show that is set so comfortably within this kind of multiverse of Shakespeare plays. Yeah, yeah. So I've been um I've been reading and acting in Shakespeare since I was 14. Um I was in The Tempest was my was my first ever Shakespeare. And um I've been sort of immersed in it since then. I think several years ago I did a charity event where I read the complete works of Shakespeare live on Twitch 24/7 for about 5 days for the Samaritans. Um so I got to read uh, all of it then. <laughs> which is a bit sticks in the memory a bit more than the rest but uh yeah that was that that was a wonderful wonderful experience well that was what i mean that was that was sort of the the theme for this episode of the podcast was i was interested to use uh the fact that you have created this wonderful uh show and now uh film sort of adaptation of it i get a a sort of pro shot i think uh is the the phrase that often gets used uh of the uh, of the prince, that I thought would be really interesting to use that as a kind of jumping off point uh, to talk about, uh, yeah, what is that kind of ongoing appeal? And it's kind of, I think it's in- interesting to chat to you about it, partly because you have had, because it does, like Shakespeare does seem to pop up every so often in your videos, um, but also because you, uh, having written the play and acting in it, I think you've got the perspective of both that creative thing of, you know, why did you feel like you wanted to use these stories to create a new story, but also what's the appeal of um, acting in them? It's interesting because mm-hmm. I was going to ask actually, what was the, because I suppose to start off, Shakespeare has been something that has popped up in your videos every so often, I think. And I mm-hmm. guess you have mm-hmm. had quite an ongoing relationship of sorts with 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 Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it has. So I've been, um, I mean, ever since Philosophy Tube, there'll probably be bits of it back in season one. Um, mm. So for, for the clarity of your viewers, I divide Philosophy Tube into seasons. Where okay. Season one is everything from the start until um, my episode on Elon Musk. Season mm-hmm. two is everything from Elon Musk until identity. And season three is everything from identity ongoing. Um, so I think even way, way back in like Way back in season one, I think I was probably dropping references in there. Um, season two, there were definitely some episodes which were had like more engagement with Shakespeare um, and like uh, you know quotes or even performances of little pieces of it. Um, so yeah, it's always kind of been around. As I say, I, I've been I've been doing it since I was fourteen, um, mm. and I just I just kind of love it. I mean, my my route into it was through acting um, when I I was in the Tempest, and uh, there's. Well, and also at British Drama School, um, you are when you audition, you are expected to perform usually two monologues, a modern one and a classic one, and the classic one is is usually Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And I remember did a, I did a little bit from the Merchant of Venice at my um, at my uh, drama school audition. So, so as a, as an actor, you know, you you kind of have to be expected to at least 
know something about it. And as an actor, Shakespeare is, I love the technicality of it. I love the the technical challenge of it. Um, once you once you get that rhythm of the iambic pentameter down, it becomes so easy, and it's 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 difficult to do Shakespeare badly once you master that rhythm, because yeah. it's like he is there holding your hand and being the director for you. It's it's so beautiful because because it's written in this ten syllable per line rhythm. And he is so particular about which words get emphasized. If you pay attention to the rhythm, he'll actually teach you that. And sometimes characters will have 11 or 12 beats in a line and it shows that their thoughts are rushing and they're animated. Sometimes mm-hmm. they'll only have, you know, five or six. And that means you've got to pick somewhere to put in a pause to make up 10. Also, you know, if your character has six beats, your uh, your scene partner will have to give you four back. And the mm-hmm. the, the technique is uh, whatever rhythm they give you, you give them back the same pace. So if they're giving you six beats very fast, you give them four back very fast. Mm. And he, he's directing not just the lines, but the scenes as well as you go. So it's it's so beautiful to have that direction there in the text itself. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and as, as an actor, I found that once I once I learned that rhythm and I discovered I have a bit of a knack for it because it's it's not something that anyone that everyone can necessarily uh, pick up on. I, I'm, I'm uh, I'm not dyslexic, for instance. I know some actors who are dyslexic who struggle a little bit with Shakespeare or with um, with language or with the old-fashioned language of it. Uh, or, you know, sometimes Shakespeare is very difficult. Sometimes he's making poetic references to things that we don't reference anymore. There's mm-hmm. a bit in, I think, the Scottish play where somebody mentions Tarquin's ravishing stride. And if you don't know who the hell Tarquin is, then you're like, well, what, what, bloody, who, who's Tarquin? Is he, is he coming on later? What, what's that all about? Um, so, so, yeah, it, it just happened to be something that I enjoyed and had a, had a little bit of a, a knack for i guess who is a quick sidebar who is tarquin um tarquin uh in the context in which he's being mentioned tarquin was going to uh commit uh an assault uh so his, okay. his ravishing stride is his uh, as he's walking on the way to do this thing he is uh, going to do this terrible thing but he is uh making his way towards it with a, with a degree of uh, rapaciousness and appetite and i guess nastiness <laughs> yeah it's interesting that was because i sort of had uh, on my list of things i was keen to ask was sort of you know as and i guess you can't speak for all people who act but as a as a performer sort of what is the appeal of wanting to be you know because because i think most actors maybe not maybe not everyone but but quite a lot you know it is a esteemed it is sort of an ambition is to be one of the the lead characters within a Shakespeare play, and I was sort of interested to ask you, uh, you know, what 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 particularly is it about it? You know, is it the? And I was thinking, you know, maybe it's about the prestige, maybe it's about the uh, something about the characters and the the these kind of the fact that they feel so weighty. But it's interesting you're talking about actually no, it's the technicality of the language that for you is the thing that is for me. The yeah, I, I, no doubt it's different for every actor, and some some people probably enjoy the prestige and stuff as well. I I really enjoy the technical aspect of it. I also think uh, a lot of the characters that he writes are just really bloody good. Um, mm. And there are moments when you get to go somewhere in a performance of a Shakespeare character that not a lot of roles these days would necessarily take you. Like Shakespeare really takes his characters to some dark places, it's like really the edge of human feeling, um, the places that we don't often like to kind of think about. I, I remember the the scene in... in um, I'm getting my, my Titus Andronicus and my Coriolanus mixed up. Titus Andronicus, uh, where his sons are led away to be killed. And that mm. scene is like, 
oh, it's just gut-wrenching when he's like on the floor crying. It's like he's really taking us to the very limit of what humans can feel without breaking down. And as somebody who's, whose job is to kind of feel emotions and go on emotional journeys as a character, it's, it's just a real, real treat. Like, and, and I think there's so many part of the fun of acting is getting inside a character's head and be like, why do they do that? Why do they, why do they think this way? Why do they say this thing? And there's some, some characters that are just kind of abiding mysteries. Um, obviously kind of one of the big ones is, is Hamlet really mad or is he just pretending? Um, but then also like Iago in Othello, like, why does he, why does he do what he does? At the end, they even ask him, why do you do this? And he's just like, oh, you know. And it's like, what? No, do we? Like, what? come on, dude. Like, tell us why. Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's so much fun. Um, the way guess- he like makes things takes things to a place that it's just as an actress, it's a real treat together. Like Mark Antony, this is a role I would love to play. Mark Antony and Julius Caesar wakes up with a hangover and goes to bed as one of the three rulers of the world. Like that is the most important day of his mm. life that we see is the day that Caesar gets killed. And he has that moment where he has the body on that. He walks in and he sees the conspirators standing over the body with bloody hands. And like he shakes their hands and it's just such a powerful such a powerful scene and then they leave and he has this this speech with the corpse it's just like oh my god it's so beautiful and also like um some of the characters are so so rich as well and and shakespeare really had a talent for delving into either the best or the worst day in somebody's life and really Mm. like wringing their guts out um in a way that makes you just kind of go oh fuck like so um i mean shylock's um uh, if you prick us, do we not bleed speech was something that I had heard very, very famous piece of writing. Mm. Um, and it wasn't really until I, I came out and became a, a minority in my country that I really understood both the despair and the venom in that speech. Mm. Um, like, if you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? Like, if we are like you in the West, we will resemble you in that. It's so, so heartrending that yeah. moment. Um, and I suppose yeah. it's that either, either it's those, there is a weightiness either in the the characters going to that those places on their own kind of personal journeys mm-hmm. or in the you know or to go back to the prince whether it's hamlet going to those really dark places of um trying to work out you know maybe himself trying to work out whether he's mad or not or whether he's pretending Mm. and um and all the death etc that happens in that play or whether it's the sort of weightiness of the of henry the fourth for example which has similar weightiness of characters but also has the weightiness of it being like history and that it's everyone has power and the things that they do are going to decide the fate of the country uh Mm -hmm. in in front of them um and maybe it is a kind of weightiness that i think we we sometimes shy away from a little bit maybe these days that it's it's a bit sincere it's a tricky balance to walk as well i think especially in the histories and stuff like henry the fourth part one there is the big political machinations that all oh, the Bolingbrokes and your dukes of mm. this and that, and the people are clashing in their armies and this Lord is having an alliance with this Lord. But then also you've got the very, very human drama of like Hotspur and Hotspur's wife, Kate, mm. like how, mm. how do they get on? And I think um, Shakespeare does a really, really got good job of balancing those two things and like making sure the human drama comes to the forefront. Even if you're like, okay, I'm not, 
entirely clear what the kind of political situation of like King Lear is supposed to be, but like I kind of get that, oh, like that guy is really upset at his dad and I really care about that. And like, it actually, um, uh, it reminds me a little bit of, of, uh, of House of the Dragon and Game of Thrones. Mm. Um, I've, I've been watching House of the Dragon recently and um, they, uh, they really do a good job, the writers on that, of balancing the kind of this massive mm. political world and all this intrigue and stuff with the kind of very small, like actually it's about this guy and his niece or it's about this this girl and her dad and stuff like that. And it's the, the, the balancing act between like the very, very big world and the very, very small vulnerable people is something that Shakespeare just captures so beautifully. Yeah, that's interesting, actually. I was, um, I've recently been watching the final series of Succession, which I think has been sort of compared to, to a kind of modern day Shakespeare in terms of the kinds of power that, uh, that the characters within it wield, although they're sort of in media in the present day. And that's similarly interesting in that sometimes you're interested in the kind of business machinations of it all. <laughs> and sometimes, uh, one of them has their heart broken or there's there's a relationship which doesn't quite work out or uh, there's a relationship with a with a dad or with a son that is mm. um just heart-wrenching on that really personal level mm. and that's uh yeah that and i think because in the the prince that's kind of the aspect that gets drawn through i guess rather than the uh the big uh historical uh, aspects that it's really that that journey of, of of Hotspur, for example, that that you that you uh, take on yourself on stage, and also uh, Hal's kind of coming of age uh, mm-hmm. story. Um, and it was interesting to see uh, you doing something which I think is is a bit of a tradition with Shakespeare, although often it's with playing with the plays themselves rather than sort of wrangling them in quite the way you did in terms of writing a new play which engages with them of using old stories that some people might already know something about to then tell a new story mm-hmm. uh, and did how did it feel to be doing that was there a sense of trepidation with with playing with you know the the, the national poet or, or whatever yes there was a little bit but mainly that was out of um fear of backlash uh, mm-hmm. because shortly before we opened the prince there was a play which opened at the Globe called I, Joan, um, which was wonderful. And uh, it was portraying Joan of Arc as a non-binary person. And there was a lot of backlash to this that was led by the right-wing British papers um, and also against uh, the writer and and the lead. Um, And I thought, oh, shit, wait till they get a hold of me. (laughs) Mm. Fortunately, in the end, uh, the things weren't quite as bad for us as they were for them. There were sadly a few newspapers which made transphobic comments about me which was hurtful but um you know that was somewhat to be expected um so yeah I I was more worried about the backlash from cis people because the prince is a very queer play um in addition to to kind of messing around with Shakespeare so I I was more afraid of the queer phobia than the kind of poison from the Shakespeare heads and in fact the the sort of Shakespeare lovers really enjoyed it actually and uh Mm -hmm. and I also got one of the best compliments I've ever gotten in my life um after the show which was somebody said, I, I've been watching Shakespeare for years and I couldn't tell what was Shakespeare and what was you. And I was just like, oh, thank you very much. That's quite a quite a compliment to get for your first ever play. Mm, yeah, I mean, I mean, you were writing and um, producing the play in difficult times for um, mm-hmm. trans rights in the UK. And mm-hmm. I, I, I imagine there must be some crossover between a kind of 
Telegraph audience and a slightly more traditionalist Shakespeare audience, maybe. But, um, but, but I, I mean, the audience when I was there was in, just wrapped up in and absolutely loving it. Did you did you sort of feel that through the run? Yeah, that was one of my favorite things. Actually, is um, how many how many queer people and young people and people who've never come to theatre or wouldn't normally go to see Shakespeare mm. came to see the show. And that, that I think is in large part thanks to how wonderful the Philosophy Tube audience is. Um, that people people turned up. I mean, I had somebody message me after the show one, one night and said, um, I've never gone to the theatre before, but I came because of you and now I want to mm. go again. And I was like, wow, that is, I mean, an astonishing honour for me as a performer mm. to be somebody's like first show never mind first shakespeare first show um that's a special moment um i always think there's something very special about somebody's first ever shakespeare play uh mm. and i i've been lucky enough over the years to be quite a few people's first exposure to shakespeare which i think is is wonderful because you don't i i don't forget it like i mm. the first time i was in shakespeare was the tempest but the first production i think i ever remember seeing my earliest Shakespeare memory is of the Scottish play in in the Newcastle Theatre Royal, which just absolutely captivated me with like mm. the music and the costumes. And I was like, okay, I, I can kind of guess about 50% of what's going on here, but it is, <laughs> it's so gripping to me as a, I must've been, you know, not much more than 10. Um, wow. I'm like, wow, this is so cool and dark and feels so ancient. And, and the world that they brought to life here was so amazing. And yeah, I think... Yeah. Theatre like, theater is a really tricky one in terms of what you were saying about you know, people maybe not have, not having gone before or maybe mm. being a little bit sceptical in that I, um, so, so I worked in theatre for quite a long time and I often found that there was an audience thing where if people see a bad film, they go, oh, that was a bad film. Uh, I might not see the sequel, but they'll, mm. they'll possibly still go to the cinema again next month or whatever. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas if people see a bad play or show they will often go oh it's I, there's they will ascribe it to theater generally and we'll go oh I, I my sort of skepticism has been confirmed about this kind of art form as a as a whole and yeah people will go i'm not really a theater person in a way mm. that people don't generally go i'm not really a, a film person or a music person like mm. i don't i don't listen to music it's like ever like but there are people who just simply never go to the theater and don't engage with it i think part of that is is expense theater yeah. tickets yeah, are yeah, not yeah. cheap um it is cheaper to go to the cinema mm. uh, for sure and part of that is i think some theater is both intentionally and not intentionally made for theater heads. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the same way that a film has uh, a language of grammar and editing to it, you know, people understand what like a scene transition is, or people understand what an establishing shot is, stuff like that. Even if you don't know mm -hmm. the language, like, you know, you recognize these things that are used to structure a film. I think theater too has its own language sometimes. Um, I think that language is a lot more fluid than it is in, in cinema. Um, but if you're not aware of that, you might feel like this isn't for me or, or I'm expected to know something here that I'm like, I'm expected to know what to look at and what not to look at mm. in a way that a film doesn't quite demand so much of me. And I think that's true whether or not the play is explicitly aimed at regular theater goers or not. And some are like, I went to see, um, I went to see a fantastic play the other night at the new diorama, um, which was, uh, called war and culture 
And it mm-hmm. was very much about the business of making theatre in Britain right now. It was, was fictionalised, mm. but it was about what it means to make art under a right-wing government, um, mm. and in particular under a government on which you depend for Arts Council funding. Um, yeah, and it was yeah. it was very, very pow- powerful. Um, but it was, there was like a lot of in-jokes and a lot of stuff that was definitely in there for the theatre heads because they knew that actors and industry people would come to see it. Um Contrastingly, I went to see a play the other night at the Arcola. Um, I'm blanking on the name now because all I can remember is the name of the lead actor, which was Elf Lyons. Uh, the name is The Misandrist. Um, it was produced by the same people who produced The Prince. Yeah. That was absolutely fantastic. And it was, I would have thought, you know, compared to War and Culture, much more open and accessible to first time theatre goers because it mm. is much more like, a, okay, here's a story. We're going to tell you what the story is you don't necessarily need to know anything about like theater or the behind the scenes stuff, but just kind of like go with us. Um, so yeah, I think possibly what puts people off is sometimes they'll go and see a show that asks quite a lot of them as an audience member. And if they don't have it with them on the night, then perhaps that puts them off. Mm, yeah. I, um, uh, I, I go and see a relative amount of, of stuff, uh, nearby me where it's often people trying something new out and, you know, maybe it's the first time they've performed a certain thing. And so, you know, usually it's in a relatively small auditorium and, quite often there will be a joke about how hard it was to get the arts council funding or whatever and that always feels a little bit inside baseball of um of it's possibly funny good uh, phrase if you yeah, also yeah, yeah. if you also are sort of in the biz um mm. but but i think i think it can be quite uh interesting. i think it can also be and and sort of shakespeare in particular can often be directed at a very particular uh, audience i often yes. when i'm uh so since uh, Georgia, who is listening and making sure the computers are working, uh, since Georgia's been working with us, uh, every time before we film, I tend to sort of read out the bit of the script I'm about to film and sort of go, you know, what what does this sound like as a thing that I'm going to say? Uh, and uh, one question I always have about anything that's sort of a joke is, is it an actual joke or is it a kind of theatre joke? Uh, mm. which, which are those sort of jokes which tend to exist in a lot of um kind of usually quite straight plays where someone says something and it's not quite a joke in the sense that it's hilarious but everyone sort of just goes like ha ha like and it's sort of more about um maybe the audience feeling intelligent and having their kind of uh status as people who know about how the world works rewarded than it is about mm-hmm. The sort of classic thing of your expectations are um, judged, uh, are sort of subverted, or whatever. Um, yeah, I was thinking actually when I was taught, when I was um, sort of thinking over the prints in prep for uh, talking to you and thinking about the audiences. That actually, with this, you were almost going between two audiences. Of you've got potentially on one side the the sort of Shakespeare heads as it were who are sort of watching a certain scene and sort of mouthing along with with how it goes and uh know the history of all the different iterations of that particular scene and they're sort of comparing it to how X did it at the Y theatre in whatever year um and then you've got people who are really skeptical of of oh I've you know I really enjoy philosophy tube but I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not so sure around this Shakespeare thing and maybe going in a bit unsure and that you're kind of going between those two audiences and mm. 
potentially could have upset, <laughs> like sort of could have upset both of them, I guess. But but did you find that you managed to draw them together? Yeah, I mean, uh, people people responded very positively to it. Um, there were some people who were sitting there mouthing along, not only with with Henry the Fourth Part One, but also with my text. There were people who had like my play text on their laps and were following Ooh. it, um, which was. It bizarre to see <laughs> for me. Mm. I didn't expect that. Um, but, uh, you know, and wonderful too. Um, but, uh, yeah, that it, it, it seemed to like bring people together and, and, um, there were people who said, Oh, I've been, uh, I, I probably can't say who, but there was a director who, a, a very, very big established Shakespearean director who came to see the show and we had coffee, um, a couple of days after one night when he was there. And, um, he said, it's never occurred to me before that Hamlet is a queer story. But now that I've seen you do it, I can't see it any other way. He said, you, mm. you should absolutely do that. Like it is. Now that I see it, I cannot help but see the relationship between Hamlet and Claudius as Hamlet being queer and Claudius not accepting. Um, and I was like, oh, that's so cool that I've managed to like redefine the meaning of this play for somebody who is, uh, who's been, mm. you know, doing Shakespeare longer than I've been alive. <laughs> you know, somebody who, who like drops Mark Rylance into the conversation by like referring to him as Mark, you know, <laughs> like, Oh shit. Okay. That's kind of cool that we've, uh, that we've given you something new. Um, yeah, that's kind of cool. I mean, I guess that's, I, I sort of asked you, you know, what is it as a performer that makes you want to, uh, perform some of those roles? But I guess then as a, as a writer and maybe there's something that directors get an opportunity to do a little bit more because they get to sort of stage Shakespeare maybe more than writers get the opportunity to to meddle with it a little bit um what was it that made you want to because I guess you know there was the other option of you write something that exists entirely of its in its own world but but you sort of went oh no there's characters here I want to play with and I want to take these um take these stories and mess with them a little bit um what was it that what did you see maybe in because i guess it was henry the fourth part one you said you started with what was it that you saw in that play that made you go oh i've got 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 something i want to sort of do with that honestly it was the character of hotspur um i like her i i, I say her because she's a woman in the prince um in the original text hotspur is a man but i like her um I like her journey. I like that she is under pressure. And also over the course of the original Henry IV part one, we see her cracking under pressure. Mm -hmm. uh, I like that she has a very relatable flaw, um, which is that she gets angry easily. She mm -hmm. gets pissed. That's her main flaw in Henry IV part one. It's like, and people are always telling Hotspur all the way through the play, like, like chill, like chill out. Um, but, you know, she, she cares about stuff. She gets head up. She's, you know, she feels constrained and lashes out. And it, it's a very kind of, human flaw especially in a stressful scenario like you know running a war um and uh it's it's interesting i think the ways in which that is both a blessing and a curse for her because she's also held up as this paragon of masculinity in henry the fourth part one in particular contrasted to how who's a little bit more sort of cool and thoughtful um so i just i just found her interesting as a character she's from the north like i am she's from northumberland so a lot of the time when she's referencing places or people like hometown, in yeah <laughs> Yeah, well, it's stuff that I know. I just found her inherently relatable as a character. Um, mm. She's also somebody who is quite constrained by her role. And I guess I related to that when I read Henry IV Part One for the first time when I was still in the closet. Um, as, and I was also constrained by a role. And also people used to point to me and say I was like a paragon of masculinity. And I, I also found that to be <laughs> quite suffocating. Mm. Um, so that was, uh, yeah, it was just a multiple multitude of reasons. I was drawn to... 
Hotspur as a character, first and foremost. And then I also realized that the story I wanted to tell with the prince, thematically the story is about the roles that we play for other people, the roles that we feel pressured to play for other people. And um, I thought Shakespeare is a fun way to explore that because people often come to Shakespeare with expectations. Mm. It's expected to be done in a certain way. It's very serious and it has a lot of weight and it's very important to the nation. And I thought, oh, that's kind of... The, first of all, that's the journey that Hotspur is going on. It's like, this is a very serious thing that you have to do. And it's very important for the nation and your family and everybody. So like, first of all, there was a nice parallel there between like Hotspur as a character and Shakespeare as a, as a mm. kind of national mm. cultural symbol. And also I thought there's a nice parallel here to, again, what it's like being a queer person in the closet. That like, it's very, very important that you play this role that you have been assigned and you take it very, very seriously. And you, you know, it's very important to your family and everybody's looking at you to do a good job at this. And any kind of like fun or weirdness or kind of breaking out of it or queerness is seen as, oh, it's very bad, you mustn't do this. Uh, or or at, at best, it's like, oh, that's very bad, you mustn't do this. At worst, it's like, well, you're kind of actively subverting the, the texture of the nation. Um, so that's kind of, it all just sort of lined up thematically in my head uh, between the the gender stuff and the wider stuff about queerness and the Shakespeare itself. And that made me want to go, okay, I think I want to tell a story using Shakespeare, first of all. And also I wanted to tell a story that starts in Shakespeare, that starts mm. with the characters playing a certain role and then gradually realizing it doesn't fit and growing out of it. Um, because rather than like, well, I, I wanted to show what it is like when one is in the closet of, and not realizing that until one is an adult, um, when one has a life already on the go, like Hotspur already has relationships which revolve around her being perceived as male. She already mm -hmm. has, you know, family and expectations and a whole future mapped out that rely on her being perceived as male. And um, I thought there was an interesting parallel between that and the rhythm of iambic pentameter. That's like, here is the rhythm that propels you forward. The train is already moving. You have to change directions whilst it is in motion. You cannot stop and readjust. You have to like... The, the subversive queer element has to grow slowly from within and push its way out until the, the pot breaks apart, I suppose. It's interesting that you're sort of saying, um, and I mean, it's always wonderful in a creative project where everything lines up in that way and, and mm. you're able to go like, oh, it's here, but whatever this theme is, I'm trying to explore is here and here and here. It's interesting there because you're sort of saying it's in, the, it's in the words themselves, it's in the context of Shakespeare, it's in the character of Hotspur, because mm. that's almost something which... But because I guess being a writer, performer in the in the in the particular category of kind of new writing, I guess is not super common. Like if people are writer performers, they are slightly more likely to be doing kind of storytelling in the sense of it being maybe something that is, uh, you know, this thing happened to me, uh, and sort of telling a more personal story maybe whereas and it feels like that this the that the prince is almost something that could only have come out of you doing those two things crossing together because it was partly that you wanted to you wanted to embody that role and then that sort of helped you uh tie in the ways in which the role of hotspur sort of related to uh how shakespeare is perceived and also the 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 rigidness of the of the text as you were just describing it there mm -hmm. um 
And I think it was really, it's a really interesting take um, for, for anyone that doesn't sort of know Henry IV Part One particularly well. Sort of, I guess, in the most obvious reading of it, um, how Prince Halu's kind of are. It's sort of a weird play in that it's called Henry the Fourth Part One, but Hal is kind of the protagonist almost mm-hmm. more than King Henry is. But um, that Hal is sort of failing as a heir and as a and as a man and as a son and in pretty much all of the roles that he's meant to uh, take up in society. And Hotspur is sort of the opposite of that in terms of both being the antagonist on the battlefield, but also sort of being the person that has it made and mm-hmm. the, the you know the the son that the king wish the person that the king wishes was his son and, and all of this mm-hmm. um and so it was actually really interesting that that then you were like well i'm going to question some of these things and actually does this character who seems to have it made actually you know what what's what's a bit more of their interior life because does, does some mm-hmm. of that come out in the play as it previously existed, like in in Henry the Fourth Part One, I, I don't. Know. I mean, I think I think if it's done well, then absolutely, yeah. Mm. I think I think a production of Henry the Fourth Part One in which Hotspur is like totally, just absolutely played completely straight is is potentially not as as interesting as one yeah, in which yeah. Hotspur is also kind of struggling with the same issues that Hal is, not necessarily the same issues in terms of you know character flaws and stuff, but also confined uh, by their role. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I would hope if I ever got to play Hotspur in a sort of a, a regular production of Henry the Fourth Part One mm. that I would bring, perhaps not exactly the same ideas to it, but yeah, you know, I, I, I think that a production of Henry the Fourth Part One in which Hotspur is just a kind of like perfect Chad is is not as fun. That would that would be really interesting if you played mm. the same role in Henry the Fourth Part One, you know, as it exists. It'd be interesting. What you know, what what did you draw over? Hey, I hope you're enjoying my chat with Abby. If you are, and you want to check out further instalments of Induction, then you might like to know that every single instalment of the show comes out a full two weeks early on my streaming service, Nebula. By now, you've probably heard a bit about Nebula. It's a premium streaming service built by a bunch of the internet's finest educational creators. You'll find Bleeger Legal, Big Joel, Philosophy Tube, and, well, me. Alongside allowing you to watch our videos both ad and sponsor free, Nebula is also packed with an ever-expanding library of exclusive content. So you can watch the filmed recording of Abigail's play, The Prince, or my Nebula class in which I pull back the curtain on the research process which informs my main channel videos, both of which aren't available anywhere else. And, as I mentioned a second ago, both the audio and video versions of every single episode of Induction are available on Nebula a full two weeks before they make it to YouTube, Spotify, or anywhere else. So, if you want to listen to the next episode of Induction, in which I chat to Neil from The Leftist Cooks about the changing form of video essays on YouTube, then you can do so on Nebula right now. If you're interested in joining me on Nebula, then I'd be particularly grateful if you'd do so using our custom link, go.nebula.tv forward slash induction. That's induction spelled I-N-D-U-C-T-I-O-N. Using that link will bag you a full 40% off an annual plan, meaning that you can get access to Nebula for just $2.50 a month. That link again is go.nebula.tv forward slash induction. But for now, back to my chat with Abigail. But what, what would you draw over? I, I could I could chuck in some some little sneaky references to the prince heads 
just for the Prince heads in the audience, like there was a production of, um, I, I forget where it was, but there was, I think years ago, a back-to-back uh, showing of Hamlet and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And mm. there was, they'd like deliberately crossed it over a little bit. Um, so Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead in the, in their play. They all like flip, they flip coins a lot together as a game. And I think there was one scene when they did Hamlet, the same cast came on and Ros and Gil were like flipping coins and then put them away. So it's just a little, little sneaky references like that. I don't, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. Was that something, was that a show that was, so uh, for, for anyone that doesn't know it, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is dead. It's a play by Tom Stoppard, which uh, I guess Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are kind of almost extras in Hamlet, who mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, um, gets sent to do a lot of tasks and stuff and a sort of mm-hmm. pop in and then sort of Tom Stoppard takes them and makes all of their waiting time between the scenes into a new play. Is that a good Yeah, 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 yeah. I think I saw it um like an NT Live version with Daniel Radcliffe mm-hmm. a few years ago, maybe. It's good. It's um, brilliant. I've um I've been in it twice. I was uh cool. the player first time around in high school. Um, and I was, funnily enough, I was Hamlet the second time at university. Oh, cool. So, so was that, was, cause that's probably, that's maybe the most famous play that is a subversion of Shakespeare. Maybe it's that or, and Boone Tempest maybe, but, um, but was that in your head while you were? Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. There was a lot of influence of that. Um, in particular in like Sam and Jen and their, irreverent mucking about and their sort of like slightly philosophical discussions yeah there was there was a lot of inspiration from stuff out there i think in the program to the prince i even referred to my play as rosencrantz and guildenstern are dead named <laughs> <laughs> i actually i hadn't i hadn't really thought of sam and jen who who that's not watched yet are the sort of i don't know i'd sort of call them the 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 protagonists of the show yeah Is that- yeah definitely I don't, I don't want to suggest that, that your role in it was not equally important. No, no, Hotspur is the antagonist, for sure. Mm. Jen um, is the protagonist, Hotspur is the antagonist, and Sam is the secondary antagonist. Yeah, I I, I hadn't necessarily thought of them in, in the, the same way as Richard Cranston Gildenstern, but there is a similar thing. You know, there's, there's every so often the play suddenly starts happening again around them, and they have to mm-hmm. kind of muddle on muddle on mm-hmm. with it. Um, I mean, you do have that. I think the, the moment towards the... Uh, like, Sam and Jen are really... Uh, good characters for anyone who is a bit skeptical of Shakespeare as a as a thing to go and spend your evening watching. Um, were you because they work as a really good kind of at times a bit of an audience stand in maybe yeah. of yeah yeah definitely um, of I mean the, the the brilliant moment is is early on when there's like a reasonable amount of just sort of pure shakespeare i take it of yeah yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's the opening of henry the fourth part one and that, that scene happens there's a little bit of extra me in there between hotspur and how but the first sort of three or four pages are like solid iambic pentameter and deliberately so that it's like quite dense very mm-hmm. heavy the play opens with that very big drum beat and it's like oh it's all very serious and then henry the fourth comes on and he's giving this big speech all these names and campaigns and it's all in shakespearean language and and i i used to love picturing people in the audience like sitting back going oh no it's all like this it's like as dense as fruitcake and then all the shakespeare characters leave off stage and then and then uh mary uh jen has this line where she's i didn't get a bloody word of that and everyone always burst out laughing. <laughs> and it's like ha i got you i got you there was even a moment where we did the where we watched the film version in the cinema and um my agent dave uh dave 
from from standard uh, was sitting next to me with his wife Yulia, and I just saw him like leaning back in the chair and putting his hand on his chin, and I was just waiting, waiting for that line, and then he then he like leapt forward and laughed, and I was just like, ah, I gotcha, I gotcha. Sort of break the expectation of it, because um, yeah, there really is that kind of uh, that sense of, and, and I wonder whether partly it is how it is taught in school, maybe a little bit. Um, yeah. I think, I think anything we're taught in school almost comes with a sense of baggage because we feel like it has to be Mm -hmm. proper in a way Mm -hmm. i guess um even uh, over the last few years every so often i've read uh kind of dickens novels and it's really interesting how actually they're sort of quite fun they're quite yeah uh, or a little while ago I i read uh, Pride and Prejudice, and I was like, "Oh, this is kind of just fun and and a bit trashy." And mm. but the fact that it is a book that is taught in schools and that is yeah. passed down to us as kind of literature uh, makes it feel um, weighty and like there is a correct way to uh, to to read it and to receive it and to understand it. Exactly, and, that's exactly what I wanted to play with. Mm, I think I was this feeling that there's a correct way of doing things because. Mm, um, I mean, I mean, Shakespeare almost operates as a kind of, uh, I don't know, it's almost kind of like a secular Bible almost, I guess, in the Ooh. fact that it's, I don't know, it's this sort of like, if anyone has it in their house, they probably have the complete works and it's probably this big weighty book which sits on the bookshelf somewhere mm-hmm. and it's sort of divided up into its... Uh, comedies and histories and tragedies or which thin paper like yeah so the sort of like a first and second testament and it's yeah poetic in ways i guess also the i'm trying to think which king james is the king james bible but i guess the but i think at a similar time right so maybe the the language is similarly uh, of a similar era, maybe. Um, well, I think also it forms such a basis of cultural references mm. um, that, like, people can recognise images from it so easily. Like, you know, mm. the, the image of like Jesus on the cross, it's like a very recognisable mm. image. Similarly, like, you know, Romeo below and Juliet on the balcony. It's kind of an all-time symbol of romance, and um, that people might know the names of, of you know characters in Shakespeare, even if they have never seen the play. Like, people know hamlet right it's like oh he's the he's the guy he's he's like crazy right that's the only thing a lot of people know about hamlet a lot of the time mm. um it was like oh he's really depressed or like oh it's like david tennant did that thing one time or like kenneth Branagh did mm. it right people know a little bit about it even if they've never read the uh the original itself so yeah secular bible is a really good comparison i mean i suppose it those when, when there is celebrity castings of shakespeare plays is often where you do really get that that friction because some people go to see them because it is a new production of Hamlet and they've seen every Hamlet they possibly could for the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. some people go because it's David Tennant off the, off the telly that they, and they want yeah. to see, see him live in a thing. And often you do get that real clash of audiences where um, there is a kind of, because I suppose we've talked a little bit about the perception of Shakespeare, but, but, but theatre has it more generally as well in terms of, uh, when do you clap and when do you shut up and when do you talk yeah, and when yeah. do you uh, when do you laugh when is it appropriate to laugh when is it not should you be quiet should you be jeering at the at bad things that are happening or mm. um, which are things that have change of time but I think it's, it's really interesting when there are those celebrity 
castings that you often see those that that friction um burst out quite a lot i think yeah 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 and also things like you know people taking pictures and videoing on their phone which mm. in theater is an absolute no-no as mm. in like you'll be thrown out um but uh in you know if, if you've never been to the theater before you might not know that so something that we had with the prince was um most nights people would turn up late mm. there'd be one or two people who were coming in like two minutes late when the play had already started and um I, I take quite a hard line on that sort of thing. The stage the stage manager uh, was more generous and did allow people in, but I, I was all for taking a hard line on that and be like, no, you're in your seat when the show starts or you don't see the show. Um, mm. Because it's one thing to come in late in a movie theater because you're not going to affect the movie. The movie is the same whether you come in on time or not. But if you come in late during the show and you disturb the actors on the stage or you have to walk past or you appear in the background of something and you throw somebody off, you can change the show. So um, there's little little things like that. People seem to find it acceptable to be late to the theatre um, in a way that, that like, I don't know, I, I have had that sort of drilled out of me over years of going to the theater like no you you're there 15 minutes early or you're late <laughs> like that's that's it mm, um, I, I mean i think that i think there's part of it is that if you have been going for many many years you probably yeah, have yeah, the yeah. You, you sort of know what the expectations are um mm. like i know the, the sort of a, a lot of research about how the ways in which uh audiences are kind of policed can often be a real kind of reinforcing of other social hierarchies in terms of um yes being yeah, kind was... of drenched in a kind of um, sort of wealthy and quite and sort of white model of engaging mm -hmm. with something that is happening uh in front of you that gets mm -hmm. carried away across all kinds of different things whether it's lectures in universities or whether it's performances uh in theaters and that i don't know sometimes people might want to engage with something slightly differently uh for all kinds of different reasons or maybe you're just not expecting um like i know i've definitely been to shows where there's been a kind of expectation that it's going to be a uh you know on, on my part at least that i've gone in being like okay this is going to be a sort of straight play i'm going to go in the light's going to go out and i'm going to shut up and mm -hmm. i don't know something bad something bad happened and someone else who's only been to the panto it's like well here's my chance to 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 heckle the baddie right <laughs> yeah 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 so i do think there is I, I, so, I, so i so i think that there is some sort of i'm not suggesting that that your your sort of take on it is wrong because i think it is it's one of those where it's still difficult as a performer if you have an audience that is not doing the thing that you're expecting yeah yeah i mean i um i absolutely acknowledge this is my bias from having been you know raised on theater since i was weaned um mm. so yeah like because because i i know and to me the the kind of rules of how an audience behaves in a theater are second nature but of course if you've never been to the theater before you might not know that um mm. or you might not know whether this is one of the shows which which defies the rules or invites you to sort of bend the rules a little bit mm. um yeah 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 i think i i think i i think i made a mistake the other night at the theater when i like i started clapping at one point when i, I didn't realize the scene like wasn't over there was a line that that, that a character got in and I was, re I was really invested and I like clapped and cheered and I was the only one who did and the, the it, fortunately it was like a fun play it didn't like break the break the you know atmosphere or anything but the character like e like in character the character was just like thank you and like he kept going um because it was this like very righteous moment um, I always find I'm a I'm a sort of third laugher or clapper like I want mm -hmm. 
I want two other people to have laughed or clapped. And mm-hmm. then I know that, that we're in an audience that is doing like loud laughing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's not at least two other people, I'm like, oh, I, I can't be the, I don't know why. I'm, I'm just like, I can't be the first person. Because I, I have that terror of being like, sorry (laughs) yeah i think in shakespeare as well there it's difficult because there are moments when characters appear to be speaking directly to the audience Mm. little like soliloquies like turn to the audience and we played with this a little bit in the prince that there are moments when a lot of the characters mainly hotspur turns the audience and is just and like does a shakespearean soliloquy and in those moments it's understood that the audience aren't really there as people but they're just like there Mm. is a sounding but the character's kind of talking to to themselves but then there is a moment in act one where hotspur is doing this and then notices the audience for real and there's that line where she just goes who the fuck are you and like actually really notices the audience for the first time um so we did kind of like muck around with that a lot um and like even she like steps off the stage too there was there was a couple of nights where that moment got a gasp which was uh which was good fun i mean i suppose it is an interesting thing of that you're i suppose any a kind of uh reinterpretation of shakespeare or or playing with shakespeare cannot is often a slightly odd thing because it is like i think as we as we've been saying shakespeare is very much like the canon it is as mm-hmm. ca- it is as canonical in the sense of being big and important as probably mm-hmm. as you can get maybe other than the bible maybe um, i think it's important as well to to talk about the ways in which deviation from expectations mm-hmm. of shakespeare can sometimes be punished mm-hmm. um yeah there are certain theatre critics and newspapers in London who will, for instance, mark down a play or comment negatively on a play if it casts, say, a black woman in mm. a leading Shakespearean role. That absolutely happens. People will say, oh, you know, this play is woke or they're obsessed with, you know, woke, diverse casting or they're trying to do something new with it and like inherently dismiss it. Like, what's wrong with just doing Shakespeare, like plain old normal Shakespeare? Mm. And that, they're, you know, um, when we talk about these expectations, it's not just, uh, the fear is not just of cultural embarrassment, but, but you know, really access to careers to opportunities to to casting i mean like god knows there's a lot of quiet discrimination that happens in the acting industry where actors who are from minorities will go up for good roles in things and people will say well we can't cast you because that would be making a political statement and mm. we don't want to do that in, in a way that it would not be considered a political statement to cast a white straight man, for mm. instance. I mean, that's that's the reason. I mean, this is like fully illegal, but it does happen. That's the reason why there are leading men in Hollywood who are gay or bisexual, but who don't come out publicly. And like, mm. we know, those of us in the industry know, um, but they could never say that publicly because then all of a sudden casting them becomes a, a political decision. Um, so I, yeah, when we're talking about expectations attached to Shakespeare, it's not just a kind of like, what do you feel when you sit down in the theatre? It's, you know, people's access to the ability to make a livelihood. Um, it's, it's, it's an important question. I mean, in relation to, to to some of that context, both in relation to, to theatre and also more broadly, um, I mean, in a context in which there's been a kind of attempt to turn drag into a big moral panic in mm-hmm. the in the UK, very much not not that there's not enough homegrown transphobia as well but also but but the specific focus on drag feels quite imported partly and like one of the the ways in which it seems baffling almost is partly pantomime but also shakespeare itself because you know the the original performances of shakespeare would have uh you know all of the women would have been played by 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 men or boys and and he toys with gender quite a lot 
in the text <laughs> itself. I, I think it is it Twelfth Night where there's a bit where uh, one of the women is pretending to be a man, and so in, oh yeah, I mean like it's all and it's so initially all, as you like it as well, like loads of it. Like, yeah, like so, so initially you would have had an actor who is um, a, a a man or a boy, I think, playing a woman playing a man so you'd have like this sort of multi-leveled thing mm-hmm. of uh toying with gender which has been a huge part of our our theatrical culture and our culture more broadly for a long long time sort of that is true and i take your point at the same time let's not do ourselves the intellectual disservice of pretending that fascism and uh, in particular the current wave of, of gender critical fascism uh, is trying to make mm. sense of the world or, or is, you know, vulnerable to things like truth or accuracy or like the actual culture of the nation. I mean, we're talking about right. people here yeah. who like say, there weren't any black Roman soldiers. It's like, no, there were, it's a fact. But mm. in, in particular, the gender critical movement, as I've said before, is is a movement against reality. It's a denial of facts. Mm. So as, as much as, um, you know, dressing up in, in different, the clothes of different genders, whatever that means, is indeed a part of British theatrical culture, not only in terms of like drag, but also things like Shakespeare and like Monty Python and so on. Mm. Um, as much as it is embedded in our culture, let's not do ourselves the disservice of pretending that fascists remotely care about that at all, or therefore that their attempts to seize power in this country would be kind of unsuccessful because of some nebulous uh, British culture thing. No, you know? you're you're, in, you're entirely right. And I think that, uh, and also just because something is... Uh, deemed as acceptable within a certain uh, bounds, quite literally sometimes yeah. in the bounds of a stage, doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean that at the same time, uh, you know, it was some wonderful past where everyone was wonderfully uh, yeah. accepting and um, egalitarian, etc. Um, yeah. Is, I think the idea of um, playing with and against the canon is... Uh, kind of a an interesting one though in the sense of that you have that because there is that sense of power attached to it that it does feel like i don't know that there is often something more interesting about taking ideas from from shakespeare or um or i was even i suppose i was even thinking that in your uh videos your sort of say normal philosophy tube videos in comparison to your sort of play but like um in your sort of regular uh philosophy tube videos that i think one thing you do really well is that you even when you're presenting ideas that are more more radical or more uh critical of society is that there's always a engagement with whatever the canonical ideas are i guess um yeah and i guess um my my one thing I try to do a lot on philosophy tube is is to be even handed and to see all sides of something. Um, I don't think I succeed in that or even come close to succeeding in that, but I do hope I fail in interesting ways. And um, I think a lot of that comes out of my instincts as an actor that even if a theory is on its face silly or reprehensible, or if even if an idea philosophically is so strange, I like to consider how could a human being come to believe this mm. you know somebody I, to take a, a non-contentious example um politically i mean uh you know bishop barclay idealism the idea that you know it's it, reality is just in your head there's no there's no kind of real substance there to be is just to be perceived seems like quite a quite a wacky idea but then i'm okay i'm interested like how can somebody really come to accept and believe this um i guess that's mm. the acting training so you sort of you sort of find yourself 
almost doing the work of someone who is about to play that that role on on stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then sometimes I I literally do play the role on Philosophy Tube. You know, that's what all that's what the mm. use of characters are for and stuff. You know. Yeah, because I think it 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 does a, an interesting thing of acknowledging the the powerful ideas that are there in a way that I think almost helps uh, viewers or audience members in in when it's a play to be able to almost critique the world in a slightly more stronger way because you're aware of the because because the more critical ideas maybe are contextualized by those more dominant ideas if that makes some sense yeah yeah and i guess that that is what i try to do at least um brilliant i mean to 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 wrap us up um and sort of come back to the prince a little bit is there do you have sort of future future plans for it hopes for it or uh i can't say right now fair enough fair enough um i'm still writing and it, it has also it has opened some doors for me um mm. so i'm i'm developing some things but i can't, uh, I, can't say. I wasn't trying to sort of extract some sort of ex- exclusive mm. uh exclusive no no don't worry <laughs> I, I, i'll announce things when i when i have things to announce um i'm still working on stuff i'm still writing um both for stage and screen development is a, is a mm. slow process and um also you know there's there's I also just like act um, without writing it. So um, I just got a call from my agent yesterday. I've been offered a, a role, a nice role in, in uh, a big TV show, um, which uh, cool. will probably keep me busy for a few weeks this summer. Um, I won't be doing any of the writing, uh, but uh, I will be acting as well. Just kind of a normal acting role. Mm. Um, although, I mean, it's, it's not a normal acting role. I mean, like, I can't say what it is or anything, but uh, if you if you thought Hotspur was <laughs> that tough, that was intriguing enough. I think. Oh boy, <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you if you liked Hotspur, I think you'll love this character too. I have no idea how you squeeze it all in. Um, I neither I, do I. I struggle to do one job. Um, but no, thank you, thank you so so much for uh, for for chatting. Um, usually at this point, I do a bit of a if people would like to find your stuff. Uh, if if there are like two people listening that have not. Uh, watched philosophy tube where could that which i just said in the weirdest voice ever uh which uh, where would they find it just type in philosophy tube on youtube and you'll find the show i mean you just dive in any episode that takes your fancy really and um, they're all about different topics and, and yeah i also run a podcast called kill james bond if you if you just like the sound of my voice but you're like you know what i don't care at all about theater or ideas i just want to hear you like swear and tell dirty jokes about james bond then uh kill james bond is a podcast for you where me and my two best friends watch movies and make fun of them um other than that you'll see me uh on your screens soon enough <laughs> just watch just watch all the tv until you turn up that's the that's the pretty much yeah <laughs> <laughs> cool um yeah no thank thank you once again and thank you for listening thanks so much for listening to my chat with abby as i mentioned during the show if you want to be among the first to get access to new episodes of induction then you can do so by signing up to my premium streaming service nebula To get the best deal on Nebula while supporting us to make more episodes like this one, you can head to go.nebula.tv forward slash induction. Thanks so much again for listening and I'll see you in the next episode of Induction.